I prefer to keep away from the attorney jokes. You know, they get they get told behind my back. I don't really get to hear them in person. Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take their freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Freelancer Show, episode 49. This week, we're going to be talking to uh, Jared Richards. He's an attorney about contracts. But before we get started, let's introduce the panel. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Evan Light. I'm back. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we have a special guest, as I said before, Jared Richards. Hey, everyone. Jared, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly so people can... Uh, know who you are and how to find you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm Jared Richards. I'm with a law firm in Salt Lake City, Utah called Bennett Tuller Johnson Deer, more casually known as BTJD. Um, we have a large corporate practice um, and a lot of our group focuses on um, startups and mo- you know more specifically technology startups. So we handle a wide array of things from you know IP protection, contracts, venture capital, and sales of businesses. So that's where we spend all our time. And so thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at utstartuplawyer. Yeah. So uh, I met Jared, what, a year or so ago? No, I think it was longer than that. Anyway. Yeah, I think um, it's been a couple of years, yeah. Yeah, it was at a launch up, um, which is kind of a social gathering where they usually have a couple of companies that are kind of just startups that are talking about what they do and they have uh, somebody who's experienced in building a business or in some aspect of building a business come in and kind of do a, a, a quick explanation of some of the stuff that you want to do as you're building your business. And anyway, they're usually pretty good, pretty interesting. I haven't been for a while, though. Are they still doing them? Yeah, the first Thursday of every month, uh, we have, you know, between 85 and 200 people show up and it's uh, it's it's a good event. Yeah, that's why I haven't been going. It conflicts with the uh, Utah JS, Utah JavaScript group. Gotcha. So I have to pick. But they're, they're a lot of fun. Really great. And uh, anyway, so I was talking to Jared at one point, and um, I asked him about contracts for subcontractors, and he gave me kind of a template one, and then I actually hired him to uh, take some of the non-competitive language out of it because a lot of my subcontractors are also my competitors. And the language in there would have basically allowed me to push them out of the space, which isn't my intention. So it, it just put some teeth in it in the sense of if you steal a client that you've been working for, for me, you know, if, if I introduce you to one of my clients and you steal them, then you're in trouble was the gist of what I wanted. So, um, let's, let's talk though real quickly about, um, the contracts that we have with our clients. Um, are there specific things that people tend to leave out of their contracts or put into their contracts that will get them in trouble? Uh, well, I guess the, the first thing um, in, in the contracts with your clients, the first thing to understand, obviously, is who owns what. 
I think that's going to be the most important thing. You know, from a developer standpoint, there's kind of this pre-existing IP concept. You all have your own bags of tricks that you probably incorporate into multiple different projects. And depending on the client, you're going to have some who might be large, you know, behemoth, large corporations who are going to insist that they own the code that you're writing for them. And the big thing there that you want to make certain that you have is at least a carve out that uh, allows you to retain all the, you know, that, that bag of tricks that you use across all of your clients, that pre-existing IP. So, um, so that's, that's uh, definitely something to be aware of because you, you know, it, it would be a real shame. And I'm sure that there are many people who've done it unintentionally and knowingly, and maybe it won't come back to bite them, but it certainly could. And they may have, you know, assigned, um, you know, assigned certain parts of that, that, the, that, that toolbox over to a client unknowingly, and they may be using it for other clients now in violation, you know, in, in, in essentially breaching the copyright of the client that, that owns that code now. So I, I think that would be kind of the, the first heads up that I would certainly be aware of. So, um, so how do you differentiate um, that? You know, the, the way that it, it typically is done is just by defining pre-existing um, intellectual property. So you could say, hey, yes, I may be building this for you. This may be a work for hire. And everything I do specifically for you may be owned by you at the end of the, you know, once I deliver it to you. However, I'm retaining all rights in my pre-existing intellectual property. And uh, you can you can have it broad and vague. So that could mean all intellectual property that you created prior to the date that you commissioned, that you began working on this project for the client. Or you could specifically enumerate it. You know, if there's a tool that, that's going to be, it's going to have main stage in this client's project, but it also may play a main stage in other client projects, you may say, well, you know, you may specifically call it out and say not only the, you know, the IP that I had created prior to today, but specifically this thing. You know, specificity always goes to reduce uncertainty. And so if it's really important, you know, it doesn't hurt to write an extra couple of lines in the contract to to make it clear so that there's no, you know, no no doubt as to what you own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what, what you guys find is most typical um, in those hiring, you know, Ruby guys, whether it is uh, work for hire where the work for hire and assignment where the client owns everything at the end, or if the client receives just some kind of long-term license and you retain rights to all your code. What, do, what have you guys found is most common for you? Usually work for hire. Yeah. Um, yeah. For I, me, it's mostly licensing. Is it? Yeah. On In my contract, it says that they get a perpetual license to the code that I wrote for them. And that yeah. they can modify it however they need to, obviously for their business needs. But that I think I think I retain ownership. That that doesn't seem to fly ownership. for me with a lot of startups because the startups often want to bank on owning the IP. So that way, when they when they invariably go about trying to flip, they can say that you know, it's their IP exclusively, and it makes it easier for them to sell. Yeah, yeah, and if it's, they just it's have different. a license, then it's different. Yeah, and for me, it's different because. Most of the work I was doing was on GPL code. So it's open source. Right. It uses GPL code. It has to be released as GPL. So most of that time I was giving them a license, even though in theory they would have a GPL license by default. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think my, my contract says the, the license thing by default, but I mean, if, if they read the contract and that doesn't work for them, I'm totally fine assigning ownership to them. 
Yeah. And, and, and from a developer perspective, you know, I would always suggest and lead with the non-work for hire um, license arrangement that you guys mentioned, you know, specifically, hey, you get a license to use this, you can modify it, um, you can do whatever you need with it, but I retain the right to use all or any portion of this in another, you know, project. You know, you've built that code base, you know exactly what it is, and obviously that can provide you great shortcuts in other in other projects. Yeah, one thing I'm because I pulled up my contract. Um, my attorney broke it out into four different things. I have mm-hmm. like client materials, which is like stuff the client gives me. Um, and so basically, it's the client is giving me a license to use it. So if they give me like images or PDFs or stuff like that, um, then there's the work product, which is the actual custom thing I'm building for them. But then I also call out general purpose libraries, which in the Ruby world would be like gems or you know kind of common code that developers share across projects. And then I also have third-party materials, which kind of, it looks like it includes general purpose libraries, but it's a bit more broader in like, say, Mm -hmm. I want to use like Bootstrap and Bootstrap has like images and stuff that might not fall under a library. But my attorney, he basically separated this out because he's like, you know, you do a lot of open source stuff. You have a lot of GPL licensing. So let's group it out like this. And this is in my master services agreement. And then in my statement of work, I'll actually say like, okay, for this one, we're going to use these general purpose libraries where I have this existing code that is my stuff. And I basically kind of slot things into one of those four saying, here's how the, the licensing and how the ownership is going to end up with the project. And, and that's a great way to do it, at not only for you, but also for the client in the end. You know, often these startups, when they go through any kind of due diligence for financing or any kind of sale, um, one of the questions that they're going to dive into is the intellectual property. They're going to dive into the code. They're going to be asking questions about what other open source licenses that, that their, their software is subject to. And if you've already got it broken out like that, it really simplifies and helps, helps them complete that due diligence and makes it, it makes their lives a lot easier. And, and then they don't look stupid in front of the investor or the prospective buyer when they say, Oh no, we own all this code. Only then, you know, when the uh, due diligence gets going and they look and they see all these these open source libraries, you know, they don't look like idiots. Yeah. Are there any other things that, that come into the contracts that we need to have in there to protect ourselves other than the IP issues? Yeah. Um, the other issues that I'd be most concerned about is, you know, perspective liability and disclaimers of liability. Um you just used some big words, and I just crossed my eyes and went, Whoa, Yeah, no, what? no. Oh, come on. That, that's the part that's like in all caps, and it's the same thing in every contract. That's right. right. That's it's right. Pretty, it's pretty much this is provided as is, no warranty, blah, blah, blah. You've got it. You know, sometimes, um, you know, you may have more sophisticated clients who are going to require some representations or some assurances or guarantees from you that the code is going to do specific things. But that obviously should not be your default as a coder. Um, as a developer, you're going to want to, you know, when you build out your statement of work, when you draft those specifications, you know, that the uh, probably the most aggressive representation that I would want to make as a developer would be something along the lines of, when I deliver this code to you, it'll reasonably comply with the specifications that we've agreed upon and that it'll perform reasonably free from bugs and errors for a certain period of time because we don't know how the you know the infrastructure outside libraries outside frameworks 
browsers, other things might change, which might affect the way the performance uh, of the of the software that we wrote. You know how those might affect um, the project. So if they're asking you to make specific representations that it does X, Y, and Z, and it'll always do that, that should be a red flag that uh, either you need to charge a lot more for it and essentially self-insure against, uh, you know, possible outcomes, or you shift the liability back to them by doing exactly what was said. You know, you have the all caps. This is as is. Once I give it to you, you've got a chance to review it. If you think it complies and you accept it, then I'm off the hook. It's you, it's in your court. If you want to hire me to do additional work on it in the future, great, you can do that. But now it's yours and your problem, and you assume any risk and liability associated with it. So um, I- including that can be can be a uh, – well, it, it would be important and necessary. Otherwise, they may have some implied warranties. Some, if they're not stated, they may have some implied warranties that could come back to bite you. Yeah, well, I'm looking at mine also. One thing that I never thought about is also um, kind of warranty and protection against data loss. Like if you write code that mm-hmm. accidentally deletes data, whose fault is that? And in my contract, it says, you know, it's the client's responsibility to protect against data loss, have backups, all that stuff. But I never thought about that until my attorney brought it up and called it out. Absolutely. It's a great, that's a great provision to include in there as well. Other risk management tools that can be included, generally you'll find these below the all caps disclaimers of warranties, would be limitations on liability. You know, talking about data loss, I mean, now we're talking about big money. If we're, if we're writing something for a large company and we've got, you know, millions of users or, or significant amounts of data and our tool all of a sudden, even though we were paid you know, fifty thousand or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to develop this. Um, if all of a sudden our work is responsible for deleting loads and loads of data or corrupting data, and the you know the va- the value of that data is in the millions and millions of dollars, we want to have, be protected so that you know we're not going to be liable and responsible for that. And so we can place limitations on liability, kind of capping the amounts that a client could come back against you for in the case that your you know your software is what caused them actual or some kind of damages. So so do you limit it by the type of problem that they have cuz it sounded kind of like that's what Eric was saying or do you limit it by like a dollar amount or both? Yeah, kind of both. So so the ways you can do that is one way you can do it is by limiting the damages specifically to actual damages suffered by the client. You know, if you have actual damages suffered by the client now, you know, we're, we're getting away from consequential, consequential damages. We're getting away from damages result, you know, or, or, or punitive damages. Um, these, those are the kinds of damages that can really start to add up and, uh, and, and be of greater concern to, you know, to you as the potential liability bearer. Uh, the other way you can, you can limit it is specifically by including a dollar amount. You could say, you know, the maximum liability that I can incur under this, you know, arising out of the software I deliver to you is X amount of dollars. And you could make it a fixed amount. You could tie it directly to the amounts they pay to you. You could tie it to some multiple of the amounts they pay to you. Um, but if you have insurance and you have, uh, and you understand the, the policy limitations of that insurance, then, uh, you know, tying that limitation on liability to somewhere under your, your, your insurance maximums, 
you know, that's a good way to do it to make sure that you're not going to be exposed personally or your business beyond, you know, the maximum limits on your insurance policy. Yeah. And mine has a, a clause that basically limits my liability to the amount in the, the fees. So, you know, if it's a $50,000 project, like that's my liability for, you know, negligence, negligence or any of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's probably most common, limiting it to the contract amount. You know, another kind of scary one often for clients is, and one that you may have them push back on is, um, and you may be super transparent with the client, but they don't know what they don't know. And uh, and one of those larger liability issues can come in the form of copyright or patent infringement. So they may ask you for a representation that the code that you're delivering to them does not infringe upon any intellectual property rights of a third party. And, it, and sometimes because we see that representation so often, it may be like, oh, well, that's just a boilerplate representation that everybody agrees to. But, but that's one where you could be potentially exposed to some serious liability. And, and maybe we talk through those scenarios real quick. Copyright infringement uh, is probably going to be less likely. You're only going to be subject to some copyright infringement if you have actually taken, stolen, borrowed, used code from somebody else that wasn't, you know, open source code or under some kind of open license that you're allowed to use. And it was essentially, you know, if, if you built something for another client and that client, um, you delivered the code to them under a work for hire, they owned all that code. And then you go around and turn and use it in another client project. You know, there's a limited, there's a possibility that that former client could come after the new client for infringement because there's duplicative code that they now own. Uh, that's going to be a probably a more limited, narrow case scenario. We see those come up often with, uh, you know, kind of former employee type situations where you'd have an employee who wrote code for a company, then they took their code base, separated off, built a competitor, and, and instead of rebuilding from the ground up, instead of rebuilding from the ground up, they took some of that proprietary code from their employer, and then there could be some copyright issues. The other kind of more less certain risk is with respect to patent. And we all know the patent system is this, it, it's a very slow system. Things that are issuing now are four, five, six years old when they were filed. And so often, especially in this, you know, software realm, patents are, you know, often outdated, often irrelevant. But because everything is built on something from, from the past, often you could build something and unintentionally well, build something, the client takes it, and later a patent issues on a process, perhaps, that is violated by what your code now does. And so at the time you developed it, without being aware of the patent, without being aware of the pending patent application, I should say, you built something, the client receives it, and then later down the road, the client gets sued for patent infringement. And they turn to you and say, you made a representation and warranty to me. That this was gonna, that it wouldn't infringe upon anybody else's intellectual property rights. And, and because patent operates in that slow manner and because it takes so long to come out and because it can, they can get patents issued on stuff, even if you independently developed it, if it was after the date that they filed their application, it can be problematic. So I guess that's a long way of going about to say, be careful about your representations and warranties about um, the code not infringing upon third parties' rights, even though you're the only one who ever touched that code. 
That makes sense. So I want to change tactics a little bit because there's a, there are other parts of the contract that I think are important. For example, um, the the whole part about you getting paid for your work. How, how do you that. how do you write that without putting loopholes in it? You know, getting paid is like uh, you know the the old saying: a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if you can swing it, retainer agreements are obviously better than invoicing a client. Obviously, you can't always have that. You know, having a having a a substantial portion of the project paid up front. Any any methods that you can employ to get cash up front are always going to be better. Giving discounts to giving a discount off the project by paying a substantial portion up front. Uh, I hadn't you know, even thought about that. I, that's an interesting. Those are not legal concepts, but you know, just from a practical standpoint. If you can get paid up front and you don't have to worry about the headache of collecting on the project later, I mean, you're going to save yourself so much time and headache. Remember and how, how I'm, I'm always saying, at the very least, collect a deposit up front. Not entirely dissimilar if it's going to be a long-term project. Yeah, absolutely. It's and just, a, it, it, as I keep saying, it's a risk mitigation. Well, just in it, case they don't pay, you can part ways with them and you still at least get paid for the period that they gave you the deposit and ideally you haven't lost any ground. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a new concept either. I mean my my dad's a dentist and he offers a cash discount. Yeah. So so if you give him cash when when the service is performed, you get like 10% off. Yeah. And it's because then he doesn't have to worry about collecting. You're mm-hmm. you're paid up. That's right. Oh yeah. sure. I mean it's it's really not all that different it, in in terms of comparison it's I don't remember exactly where I got the idea from. I'm sure I wouldn't know because um, you see it all the time with apartment rentals, a security deposit in case you mm-hmm. run wild on the apartment. Then they ha- then they already have some money from you that they're not going to give back in order to do repairs. In this case, it's essentially the same thing. That is that they don't pay you, so they do damage to your relationship, and you can walk away and you still have that deposit. Yeah. And I know quite a few development shops that do require an ongoing retainer. So even though the project may be a $100,000 project, they say, you know, that's going to be a nine-month project. We know what our monthly expenses most likely are going to be. So we want a $7,000 retainer. So it's kind of like that deposit. And they say, you're going to put that $7,000 here. We're not going to – it's not ours yet. But as we do work, we get to draw from that. We'll send you an invoice. Um, detailing our time, detailing our progress, doing whatever we do with, from a project management standpoint. And then if there's no undisputed um, charges that we've um, listed on the invoice, we get to draw against that $7,000, take our payment, and then the client pays in that same amount back into the retainer. So now there's still that $7,000 retainer sitting there, and I got paid. Is that so really a retainer or is that an escrow? Well, a retainer slash escrow, you can call it, that's, it's probably just semantics there. You can call it escrow. Well, it's a matter of, I mean, who holds the money is what I'm getting at. Yeah. You, again, you could hold the money. You can, the, the way that you'd usually do it is not to put it in your operating account. You could set up a new account with your bank and it could be specifically for holding client escrow funds, right? So it's funds that are still technically the client's. But that you get to unilaterally draw from after you've issued an invoice, and there's no disputed matters on the invoice. Okay. And so that gives you it gives you an easier way to draw. Another, you know that 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 was very popular in the pre-electronic payments era, 
The other way you can do is, uh, you know, have a pre-authorized ACH authorization or credit card authorization. And, and uh, we build that into even our, you know, even from our perspective, all my client engagements from, you know, from my, as an attorney, I include, okay, if you have not paid, I, I include a pre-authorization uh, for, for collection via credit card. So you put a credit card number in there. You've authorized me to draw from it. If after I send you an invoice, if you haven't paid within the net 30, net 45 terms that we've agreed upon, then you've authorized me to go ahead and ding your credit card for the outstanding amounts owed. And it's really interesting. Contracts do affect behavior. And maybe I'm revealing a little too much. Hopefully none of my clients are listening here, but, <laughs> um, but, but just by merely including it on your contract, having the authorization form there, people think that it's just a, when you include it, they think that they have to fill it out. They don't think often that it's a negotiable point. And so I found just by sending over the, the client letter, which indicates how we bill, that they're agreeing to the services, much like your services, your master services agreement. Oh, and by the way, here's a pre-authorization. So if you don't pay, they audit, you know, more than nine times out of 10, they fill it out. And now we've got a great backstop for collections, which saves you a lot of time and headache. And, and the clients don't feel as, as, uh, there's less heartburn than putting up $7,000 in an account, um, that they no longer have access to. Although so, you have to pay the small overhead of doing the credit card transaction, right? You, you do, but man, that's, that's something I'll, I'll take the three to 4% hit any day. Sure. Over. Yeah. Over not collecting anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so is it just a form that they put their credit card information on and then you just go, you run it through like a virtual terminal on authorized.net or something? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And so, and you so can, you, you manually enter it, but yeah, it's, it's in the contract that says I can run your credit card for this amount. That's right. So if, 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 uh, authorized or whoever your, your, your merchant processor is comes back and, uh, the client has an issue, what they, there's always a dispute resolution process. They don't just reverse those payments automatically. They'll go back to the person who charged and they'll say, you know, we've gotten notice that there's an issue here. And all you have to do then is provide your contract and say, look, here's the authorization they provided me. Here's evidence of the invoice I gave to them on this date. It's been the allotted period by which they agreed that I could charge their card. And then they won't legally be allowed to reverse the charge. The person could still take it a next step. They could file suit. They could do other things, take other legal remedies. But uh, by that time, you've got the money and you're sitting on it and they need to get it back from you at that point. Yeah, and I don't, for, for our part, it's an interesting point. For our part as developers, clients, or at least my clients, are often giving me access to resources that they're paying for on an ongoing basis and or on an as-used basis. So whenever I use these resources, they're paying additional money anyway. So it's not entirely dissimilar to just giving me access to their credit card directly anyway. Yeah. So that's to say they might be, our clients actually stand a reasonable chance, or our types of clients stand a reasonable chance of being open to that. Yeah. So it's an interesting idea. Yeah. The other things to, you know, include in in uh, in your payment section is obviously I mean you may be good good and 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 reasonable people and so it may seem hard to put in interest penalties, but interest penalties aren't there to just um, you know, work your client over. They're really there just to provide incentives for your client to pay. And so um so including interest in there, it's a standard practice, not bad to do, 
despite your philosophical thoughts on you know interest as it may be. Um, the other the other point to include in there is in the off chance that you haven't collected up front, you don't have a backstop to collect it, including a provision, a one-liner that says, you know, if we're required to pursue collection actions, you know, we get you, you'll be responsible to reimburse us for our collection costs, court costs, and attorney's fees. That one line can be the difference between no money and a lot of money. By default, if you prevail at law in the United States, you don't automatically, you're not automatically allowed your attorney's fees unless there's a statute that specifically allows it or unless the other party has agreed, unless the parties have agreed by contract. So that one little extra sentence can, uh, can really help you, you know, regain some money. It also makes your, your case more attractive if you, there are, there are firms out there who specialize in collections and they will do collections work on a contingency. And if you have collection of attorney's fees in there, it makes it that much more attractive for a collection firm to potentially take that collection matter for you. And you don't have to be out of pocket, but you're not going to collect the full amount because you're going to be sharing it with the, with the attorney. That makes sense. Um, are there other sections of the contract that we haven't talked about that need to be in there? The, 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 the major other one, and you may have this in your master services agreement, or you may have it specified within your um, statement of work, and that would be your acceptance, your delivery and acceptance procedures, or your acceptance and rejection procedures. If you don't have any acceptance and re or rejection procedures, you may, you know, you may open yourself up to the possibility that the client just flat out refuses to accept your product because it doesn't comply with the specifications. And therefore, they may also make the argument that if you haven't delivered a product that complies, then they shouldn't have to pay you anything. And I've seen those disputes, and they're really nasty and really ugly. So if your statement of work is divided up into milestones and there's amounts of money, project costs associated with each milestone and you deliver a milestone according, you know, in accordance with some acceptance, delivery and acceptance procedures, you, you are reducing the risk that your client can come and say, you didn't deliver what you told me you were going to, I don't have to pay you because we've divided it up into more manageable pieces where you know the client is probably going to accept things or, or more likely to accept small pieces along the way than the whole project if there's one little thing that they don't like and they 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 absolutely reject it. So that's probably not a foreign that's not a foreign concept to you I'm, I know. Um, what do you guys typically do? You know it's nice to have a, a default provision that would say you know I give this to you you've got 14 days to review it if you don't come back with any with a rejection or any comments or or fixes, it's deemed accepted, and now I've earned all my money in connection with that deliverable. What do you guys typically um, prefer to do? What you said makes sense. Um, one thing that I do with a lot of my clients is that I'm really terrible about giving them a, a statement of work, and maybe we can talk about that in a minute and why why I ought to do that or why it may or may not matter. But um, typically, I'm using some kind of system that has some kind of um, discrete um, story or ticket that explains the feature or bug that they want 
um, you know, handled in the in the software, and then you know, there's a procedure for that. So it usually won't go into my statement of work, but I do like the idea of saying, you know, for each you know for each thing in the system that we're using to track features or track bugs, you know, yeah, if you don't if you don't uh, accept within a certain amount of time, then it will be assumed that you've accepted the work. The the, the potential problem with that. Although I'm, I'm speaking, I'm speaking when we've got a lawyer on the call. Um, Jerry could talk to it, but the potential problem I see with with that is the symptoms. This is symptoms systems that you're talking about, Chuck. Is you know obviously I I use it too, and Eric uses systems like that as well. Is that they're modifiable? Yes. So you know, a record of something that that we've done could be deleted or modified after the fact, and there is not necessarily any evidence of that. So that that's. That would be problematic. Uh, but that said, I, I have the exact, I operate in almost exactly the same way. That is that my statement of work is usually something the effect of that I'll do work for them as, as requested by the client. And sometimes it's work for hire, sometimes it's not. But it's really on a uh, individual small task basis, not a here's a set of requirements up front, go build it basis. Mm-hmm. And see, I'm, I'm a bit different. Like, I'll use the systems, like a bug tracker or whatever, to keep track of the tasks. But this is in my master services agreement. When I tell them I'm completed with the project, um, they have 30 days to basically accept or tell me there's bugs or defects or something wrong. And if they don't tell me within that time, then they basically default to we've accepted the project as it is. And so I might, I, I use Tilly Project and I'll use Tilly Project to mark stuff as this is done and have the client accept stuff in the project, but I don't actually tie that into the contract. It's, you know, when the contract's done, I send them an email or call them and say, look, the, the, the project's completed, the contract's over, you know, you have 30 days or whatever to get back to me on things and we can renegotiate or open up stuff, you know, if there is things. But you're not doing that with your current client, are you? The one where you're doing staff augmentation? Um, that's a bit different. Um, I'm actually using their contract due to their size. Um, ah, okay. and it's, it's transitioned more into a retainer model than a, here's a well-defined requirement. So it's more of, you know, we have Eric for this amount of time when he's, you know, when he's around every hour he works, he does stuff for us type thing. Yeah. That's kind of the situation I'm in right now. I'm using, I'm using my contract, but we're using their, uh, bug tracking system. And yeah, it's really just, um, Chuck's going to put in so many hours of work on our project. Um, they have an acceptance criteria for the team and, you know, there's no, there's no real, uh, warranty that's, that's apply, applied or anything. And I think it'd be pretty difficult for them to come in and say, um, you didn't deliver in these ways based on, based on the fact that there are so many people with their fingers in the code anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, with other projects, yeah, it, you know, we, I, I could just specify in there, you know, I'll deliver you a list of the, you know, the stories or whatever that have been completed within this amount of time. And then, you know, you have a certain amount of time to accept or it will be assumed that the, you know, the work's complete. But usually it's, it's a pay by the hour kind of thing. And, you know, and so the, it, it, what it really comes down to is, you know, I'm going to send you an invoice for the hours I worked and you'll pay it. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if it's more project based than hourly based, that's where this kind of acceptance and, and, and the default, if you don't get back to me with the next number of days, it's deemed accepted is, is really more helpful. And it's really analogous 
to kind of the real estate realm where, hey, I build out something for you. When I say it's done, we go do a walkthrough together and we start making a punch list and we figure out any any final changes you want. And if you don't bring it up, then so be it. And if you want to make any additional changes, now we're talking additional scope. We're talking additional additional payments. If you're working on an hourly basis, then it doesn't matter because you're just working until the client is satisfied and you're, you're, you know, you're incurring uh, additional or the, the client's incurring additional costs anyways. Mm-hmm. So, so my question, I guess, is the statement of work makes a lot of sense to me if it's, Hey, here's the project. Here's what we're going to pay you for. And we're going to pay you a certain amount. So kind of more of kind of a fixed bid thing or just kind of setting the scope on, you know, you're going to work hourly until this set of work is done. And then we'll neg- negotiate a new contract for the next, next set of work. Um, my, my question is, is if it's an hourly thing, do I need a statement of work? And if so, what do I put on it? No, if it's an hourly thing, I don't think you need a statement of work. Um, often you may have clients find that it's helpful for you to provide some budgeting to them to say, Hey, I anticipate it's going to be this much time. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, if I'm on an hourly basis, you know, just looking at the default incentives, if I'm on an hourly basis, then I want the project to go as long as possible because it means I can feed my family for a little longer. If, if I'm on a project basis, then I want to get it done as quickly as possible because I make, uh, I, I make a better hourly rate. So I don't, if I'm an hourly, if I'm on an hourly rate with a client and they want some kind of budgeting, I want to have the, I want to be able to give them the budgeting so that they internally can understand probably what it's going to be. But I still want the flexibility to say, you know, this is not a guarantee. It, the, the project may, may take more or fewer hours and, and you want to have that flexibility open. So then you're not really, you know, quasi working on a, uh, on, on a project basis. And see, for me, um, I kind of use it as like my master services agreements, kind of like the general, like these are my standard, you know, procedures. And then the statement of work is like the specifics. And so kind of like, you know, inheritance and programming, my master services agreement might outline that I do A, B, and C, but then the statement of work can say, well, we're not going to do A and we're going to do B differently. And so I even use the statement of work on hourly just for that to say like, okay, well, this project, we're changing the licensing and the ownership. And, you know, if it's like, you know, the fees and stuff, I'll just put something kind of vague in there where it's going to be an hourly amount. Uh, The scope would be like, you know, Eric's going to work on the scope as determined and agreed upon between the client and developer and kind of keep it very open and friendly and just use the statement of work as a way to override my main agreement. Yeah. And the big reason I do that is... Uh, probably 80% of my clients are repeat clients where we have this kind of the same agreement on all the projects, but each project's a little bit different. And so I give them one master services agreement, which is 10 pages. And then I give them, you know, a dozen different statements of work that are one or two pages for each project. And so I found that it lets my client review the contract. They don't have to actually send it out to their attorney to re-review like everything each time. They just have a quick thing, like a sheet to look at like, oh yeah, this is good. We're going to go ahead and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That, that you nailed it on the head there. If you take that approach and they don't have to send it to their attorney, you save a lot of time and you get the project approved a lot quicker. And uh, yeah, I employ the master service agreement with statement of work frequently. Now, now do make sure because often you'll have statements of work 
that are superseded by the master services agreement. So it sounds like you, you've made it specific to that the statement of work will always override the master service agreement, not vice versa. Yep. Um, so make sure that there's those consistencies if you plan to use it as an override. Yeah, and I mean, right, I looked at like the first actual sentence paragraph of the statement of work basically says like it overrides the master services agreement. Yeah. And then there's actually a whole section in the statement of work that says modifications like this section of the master services is replaced. This section doesn't apply. This section's amended. So it's pretty well visible and through the whole document. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple other things to maybe think about is um, if you're working, if you're, if you, well, I guess it may be a question for you guys first. When you guys contract out, are you contracting out as an agency, as an entity with multiple employees, et cetera? Or are you contracting out on an individual basis? Like personally, in your own name. Agency. Contract out as a company. Yeah, I think we all do as an agency. Yeah, I have an LLC, and that's yeah. what that's what the contract, the contracts between my LLC and the client. Okay, because often if you have a personal services contract, then um, sometimes you have certain non-delegable duties, and so I don't know if you guys use a lot of subcontractors as well, or if you're performing all the services for a client, but if you do intend to subcontract some of it out. You, you may want to call out that your contract isn't going to preclude you from, from, from doing exactly that, that, that your contract is not a personal services contract and that you can subcontract out one more or even all of the project to other people. I'm pretty sure that my contract says that, but I need to go and check that because I yeah, have I'm pretty done sure that my past. contract says that because we have the same contract, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I looked for that before. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm yeah, almost positive. It, it so. says it says you could we can subcontract at will. It's just that, and I've only ever had one. And I, actually, no, I'm 95 percent sure because I had one or two clients push back on that and say that they wanted to be sure I wasn't subbing any of the work. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah, from the client perspective, that makes sense if they know you and trust you, but they don't know the person you're subbing to. I well, mean, not it, only that, it's not. An, I, I've heard tale of enough organizations where they get contracted to do the work, and really all they do is they turn around and outsource it. They're just a broker. Yeah, they 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 try to appear to be something more than a broker, but often they're just a broker. They're just a middleman who collects money off of, off the client and pays a and uses um, rate rate arbitrage essentially to to make a buck. Yeah, how often do you find that the clients are slow to cooperate, slow to respond, and that has an impact on your turnaround time, etc.? Is is that ever become a problem with you? Have you, do you have you included provisions to that respect that Hey, the client may be in default. They may, if they're not, if they're not cooperating or providing timely responses. No, I, I haven't. And I, now that you're saying that, oh my gosh, I would like to have something like that because I don't know about you. I don't know about you, Chuck and Eric, but you've heard me go on before about some of the uh, the clients I've had who've been derelict. I've I've had that a few times too with some of my clients where, you know, the it's not that uh, they don't have things that they want me to do, but they aren't communicating them to me fast enough to keep me busy. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a problem. So I, I didn't think about putting that in the, the contract, but I kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe something to consider. Um, do you, because earlier it sounded like there are times where you are also purchasing or making, um, you're almost acting like an agent of the client to purchase certain services for them. Do you typically mark those up? If you do mark them up, do you typically disclose what your markup's going to be? 
or do you pass those through on a on a on a pure cost basis to your client? I, I'm gonna I, jump in and just say it depends. Yeah. Um, I mean, if it's like a designer or something, sometimes I'll treat them like a, a regular subcontractor, and uh, so I'll mark it up a little bit. Um, I, I usually will disclose what the rate that they're going to pay is, but I don't tell them what the markup is. Mm-hmm. Right. So, sometimes I do. I mean, it just depends on how transparent it is and whether or not they're going to be really mad that I marked it up 10% or something. You know, but mainly it's, it's really just as much communication as they need to be happy with the work. As far as like other services, if, if it doesn't fall under kind of a subcontract thing and there's any kind of ongoing, uh, purchasing of that service, I, I'll make them buy it. Gotcha. That's what I tend to do. Um, worst case, I expense it and I usually just do it at cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, just like Chuck, I think the majority of us, when we subcontract, we take a little bit off the top because we, we found the work and we have to manage the client. Then the amount varies from contractor to contractor, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what percent or what amount they take. But I think the, the bulk of us, Chuck said exactly what I do. I try to get them to buy buy the service, especially if it's a monthly payment, because I don't want to be responsible for that invoice to monthly, Um, especially for whenever the client relationship ends. I wouldn't want to maintain it. Um, Or otherwise, if it's just a one-time expense, sometimes I'll just buy it and expense them. Yeah. Yeah, but but again, I mean, if it's a one-time expense, and like I said, it's not a subcontractor type of thing, then I don't want to get into the whole argument when we part ways as to who owns what. And so I'd still rather them pay for it if I can help it. Oh, sure. Always. <laughs> I mean, because expensing it, you know, it, it's another line item. It takes me another, you know, 10 seconds to add it to the invoice. But I don't want to have to worry about the relationship after after we're done, after I get things done for them. I want them to be happy with everything they have have clear, you know, delineation of what you own and what I own. And that way, um, I can come back to you later and say, Hey, I've got this other potential client. Can they call you and have you tell them I'm deliriously happy with Chuck? I'm deliriously happy with this company. I got everything I wanted. It, it's not just all materials, Chuck. I mean, I'm talking about things also like travel yeah. expenses. Yeah. Cause I, I expense those, you know, as I incur them and they just appear in the next invoice. Yeah. That, that's fair. The travel expenses is something I really haven't had to deal with. Yeah, I want to change tactics again a little bit. Um, we've talked a lot about our agreements with our clients. Um, I'm a little curious, what are some of the gotchas that will come from the client if they insist on using their own contract? Because, I mean, we're giving them a contract that's kind of skewed toward us. You know, it gives us the security that we want. It gives us the, the working conditions that we want. Um, and we tend to, you know, sometimes the, the client is a big client or, you know, there's some reason why they really want to use their own, their own agreement. So what, what do they put in there that we need to look out for? I think that's best answered just going back through the list of topics that we discussed by wanting to include in our contracts. You know, first off, it's going to be the ownership question. Because you live and die by your code, if all of a sudden we're unintentionally assigning all of our, you know, all ownership in our code to them, that is, that's tragic. So absolutely you're going to need to watch out for that. The other provisions would be provisions um, that are very one-sided. Um, you're going to see a middle-of-the-road contract if you see that a lot of the miscellaneous provisions, meaning the provisions that are kind of the boilerplate that come at the end, if they are even-handed and mutual, 
you usually can have a sense that the rest of the contract is pretty fair. If you skip immediately to the bottom of your contract, the end of your contract, and you find all of a sudden that the governing law provisions are only in their jurisdiction, that they require you to go there if you need to sue them, and you can't sue them in your home jurisdiction if they're in a different place. If you find that they're requiring that you indemnify them in the case that they're damaged as a result of your code, but they're not... What do you mean by that? So indemnification is a... It's one of those weird, funky, big legal words, but what it really means is you'll reimburse me or you'll pay me back if I get injured by your stupidity or your bad acts or your negligence. Okay. Now, so so for example, if, if the client gets injured or they sustain damages because of the code that you write, they're saying, we want you to reimburse us for damages that we stain because of X, Y, and Z that are your actions. Okay. And, but but it also makes sense if it's an even-handed contract to have them say, and because you're agreeing to do that, we'll also agree if we do anything stupid with your code, we misuse it, and it comes back to bite you, we'll agree to reimburse you for that. So it's kind of a, we, we should have the damages and the responsibility for those damages really lie with the responsible party. Mm-hmm. But yeah. but in a in, in a in a client who's really pushing their paper, often you're going to see that it's very one-sided. Um, you're going to see so the indemnification. Um, they may have some non-competition or non-solicitation provisions. Um, you know, essentially saying, hey, it, you you may if you're working for or subcontracting, especially for another company, and you're doing all the work on the project, they may prohibit you from then you know, working directly with the end customer for a time so that you couldn't just circumvent them and, and uh, you know, really provide better services, probably at a more attractive price to the end customer. Another provision you'll want to especially look out for would be kind of a liquidated damages provision. Now, liquidated damages, we've talked about this concept of damages and the client client getting injured. But often it's very hard to pinpoint what monetary damages the client sustained, right? I mean, if they lost some data, how do you really monetize that? Is it the costs of recovering that data? Is it uh, the costs of duplicating that data or going out and getting that data again? So it's really hard to monetize. So often, or maybe not often, but sometimes you will have a liquidated damage provision which says, if we're damaged at all, we know that it's difficult to determine. And that would take experts and legal fees. So we're both going to agree up front that uh, the damages that we sustain are going to be $100,000 or $200,000, right? Mm-hmm. So so in advance, there you're essentially agreeing, if I do anything wrong, I have to pay you X amount of dollars. And those can be really, really problematic. Wow. Uh, you know, because essentially then all they have to do is go into court prove some kind of default and suddenly you know you the, the the amount of liability is already set so so pay attention to those um, and pay attention to any kind of non-compete provisions obviously again you know with any trader profession the more we do something the more efficiently we do it and uh, the more expertly we do it and so if you're working on a project for a client and they say you know, we want you, you cannot work on a project for anybody else that's similar in nature for a period of X number of years. 
you know, obviously that could also be problematic if that's become your kind of area of specialty. Even if you are, you know, even if uh, you've retained your existing toolbox and you've uh, you've only assigned them a certain portion of the code that is necessary for them to operate their system, if your hands all of a sudden are tied and you can't build out code in that particular domain, that particular field of expertise, that could be very problematic. But often, you know, clients will say, oh, man, they have real heartburn and they feel like it's a real conflict of interest if you build something for them and then turn around because you're an independent contractor and build something for a competitor or an indirect competitor um, along the similar lines. So how, how do you guys generally deal with those types of conflicts of interest? I'm sure you've got clients that bring up those issues. I've, I've been both passive aggressive and I've just by passive aggressive. I mean, I take the PDF and I chop out the pieces I don't like and then sign it and send it back. Mm-hmm. So they only have a signed copy with the parts that I'm okay with, or I've actually gone and asked them to remove them. Uh, mm-hmm. And every, every single time I'm just, Oh, sorry, Chuck, you weren't done. Well, I've never had a problem with either approach. I, I, I like being open and communicative. Um, I only made the changes like on my very first project. And then I realized that I probably should have talked to him first. So now that's what I do. And I've never had a problem, you know, going in and saying, look, I can't sign this. And one of them was a non-compete and I, and the non-compete was a separate agreement from the, um, the contract that they sent me. And so I said, look, you need to take these pieces out of the, the contract and I'm not signing your non-compete. And they were fine with that. That That's kind of what I've done. I mean, every single time, I've had an issue with um, it, it's either been an ND, some detail in the NDA or contract like mm-hmm. that. I've just gone directly to the client and say, "Look, I'm okay with all this except X, Y, and Z, and, and and here's why I'm not okay with it." Like I literally had one NDA where their NDA was so, I guess it was just done so badly that I was I would literally break the NDA the moment I did a Git clone. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I told them, look, I literally could not do my job if you don't change this here. And, and there were a few other parts like that, but, um, uh, I'm okay with, I, I, I'm not a fan of non-competes, but I'm okay with a certain amount. I can understand them not wanting me to, to take domain knowledge I gained working on their project and turning around and working with a competitor to, 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 you know, improve a competitor in their space. It's just so long, what I'm very clear with the client about is that we have to tweak their non-compete wording so that way it's, very domain specific because I don't want them putting me out of work just because I worked with them. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've seen some NDAs that read like non-competes. Oh, I have a horror story of one. Um, this wasn't even a client. I basically said no and made her go away, but she asked for a, a 10 year one way NDA where she could talk about everything I say, but I can't talk about any of her stuff. And it was a 10 year non-compete, but it was so general that I couldn't work in software for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Yeah. I've, I've seen stuff like that. It blows my mind. It's like, well, you know what? You should have told her you're open to it. If she's willing to pay you the sum of several million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've checked in on her business afterward and it's, it went bust in like a year and a half. Well, yeah. if she, if she had paid you for 10 years worth of income, she probably would have gone bust right away. <laughs> yeah. But, but that makes sense. In that same light, we were talking about, you know, the client wanted to protect the, you know, the, the knowledge that you gain on their project. Likewise, in your own contracts, you know, uh, a very specific non-solicitation that if you do have other developers that are working with you um, through your, you know, through your business you and, and that have direct access to the client, 
it's very appropriate and very acceptable to have a non-solicit so that during the project and for some term after, the client cannot directly go and approach your team members and then bring them in-house and hire them away from you and essentially take the contract away from you, you know? That sounds um, like a really worthwhile clause to add about subcontracting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what's in my subcontracting agreement. I think it's for 12 or 18 months or something. Yeah. Yeah. One other One other provision that... You know, this is, it's probably not good for the attorneys because it discourages litigation. Um, <laughs> but, uh, if you have a, a, a provision in your, it's essentially your dispute resolution provision. And it says that if either party wants to sue under this agreement, they have to go to the jurisdiction of the defending party. So if you're not working in the same state as your client and they want to sue you, all of a sudden, if they're in New York and you're in Utah or you're in Maryland, they then have to go to Maryland, if that's where you're located, and sue you there. And if you wanted to sue them, you'd have to go to New York and sue them there. And I guess that would that, be the even – oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I mean it just, it, just, it just aligns the incentives such that now you have to think about that additional cost of finding somebody not local, paying out-of-state fees – Thinking about if you do get into any kind of litigation and, and and depositions and other things, now you have to travel to that state, working with a body of law that you know you may not be as familiar with. All of those things combined, it can add that extra layer to discourage, you know, what otherwise we should just work out as reasonable people. Well, and the I other thing Chuck is, and I have apparently uh, the Chuck and I have that same provision where uh, it's a little more skewed to us. That the client, if they want to sue, they have to come to us to do it. Yep. Um, that's just the, the contract that we got. I suppose the one you described here, it's more even-handed. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you probably want to lead with the one, hey, you have to come to us. Um, but if you if you want to get you know, that halfway between, it's a good even-handed approach to say, okay, well, if I want to sue you, I've got to go to you. And if you want to sue me, you got to come to me. I have to say I'm a little bit torn as to whether or not I hope my clients ever listen to this. Because they'll know some of the things they can negotiate with me, but at the same time, they'll also know some of the things that they can't pull over. <laughs> so they won't even try, right? Yeah. I don't know. Did you have something to add, Eric? Oh, I was just going to say the, you know, where the law is interpreted. That's pretty much the basis of the stereotypical software patent troll. I think it's in Texas or someplace. There's very, very. Beaumont, Texas. Different. Yeah, there's like different laws for how patents work there. And so that's why they sue everyone there. And so that, that's something to watch for. I mean, unless you want to say, you know, you have to go to Hawaii to sue me just so you can have a vacation if you get sued. <laughs> I like that approach. <laughs> yeah, that, is that maybe a reason not to live in Hawaii? Because then if you want to make your client come to you to sue you, then they get to go to Hawaii. Yeah, the but you hand, have to go to out there to too. Go to well, if you already live there. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. <laughs> kind of funny. So, um, yes. Eric put something in the chat, and I, I'm a little curious. It, what's the difference between arbitration and taking somebody to court? Arbitration is really a it's it's not litigation. The uh, if you take somebody to court, you're bound by the laws of the state in which or the federal laws, depending on whether you bring it in state or federal court. Most of these are going to be contract claims that you're going to be dealing with unless you're dealing with intellectual property violations like copyright or patent, which would be brought in federal court. So mm -hmm. arbitration is essentially, it, it's a, it's a sped up process 
that the parties contractually agree to, hey, here's how we're going to resolve disputes. Um, so it's a, it's a quasi court, but, but the, the arbitrators are not representatives of the state. They're not state, you know, they're not voted in judges. Generally, they typically are ex judges or, or practicing attorneys. So, uh, but unlike mediation, arbitration is contractually binding upon the parties. So we we really have these three flavors. We have mediation, arbitration, and litigation. And in mediation, the parties can say, we're going to go before we can file anything in arbitration or litigation. We have to hire a mediator, a, a, a independent third party who's going to help us try and resolve our disputes. But at the end of the day, the mediator can't make any decisions. And unless we agree upon something, it, it's over and we still have our dispute. Mm-hmm. In arbitration, it's kind of, I'll make one more point about the court system. The court system takes so long and is such a, a, a time, it's so backlogged that if you want to, to really go the distance on filing a complaint and going through discovery, finally getting to a trial and getting a decision, you're talking about years and literally multiple years in most states and most jurisdictions. Unless you're dealing in small claims, Generally in Utah, the threshold is $10,000. So if you've got a claim for less than $10,000, you can go to small claims court. If you have for more than $10,000 though, then, and you want to collect on more than the 10,000, then you need to go to the regular court process, which is going to be a very long process. So arbitration then is these, you know, these ex, ex judges, current attorneys and, and the parties in their contract say, Okay, we're agreeing that we won't go to court. We'll go to arbitration because we can get this thing resolved a lot quicker. But we're agreeing that this independent third party can actually make can a actually decision for us. Make a decision and it's binding upon us. Mm. Now, if you have an area of law that is that has a lot of nuance and you want somebody with that particular expertise to be making decisions about the you know the dispute arbitration is a very good route to go because in your contract you can spell out in the arbitration provision that okay we'll submit our dispute to arbitration and the arbitrator will be somebody who has at least five years ten years experience with software who has been a former judge something along those lines so then you can guarantee that the person making decisions is somebody who speaks the same language as you if you go to a court and you file, the judge that gets assigned to your case could be somebody who's 80 years old, who was around before software was, you know, mainstream, who just doesn't understand the lingo, and it's really a luck of the draw. So by choosing that arbitration and specifying who it can be, obviously you can make sure that, you know, somebody a little more qualified to be making those decisions, and you can get it done a lot quicker. The problem, the downside though, is is sometimes you don't want it to go a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. If you're on the defending side, you may want to drag it out. And the other problem is is because it is a more condensed legal proceeding, because the timetables are a lot shorter, you often end up incurring a lot more legal fees a lot more quickly. And so from a cash flow perspective, it can often be more difficult to manage. All right. Um, I know Eric has to, or, or Evan has to leave soon. So, Evan, do you want to give us your picks really quickly? I have a few more questions for Jared before we wrap the show up. 
Oh, um, okay. So um, my picks, I guess I have two, one specific one. I started doing a podcast with uh, Z Spencer. Uh, I guess it's really a screencast. Uh, and Z Spencer, Ash Dryden's on it sometimes, uh, Dave Hoover, Isaac Sanders. And we're talking about how to uh, basically grow other software developers. So it, it's really about mentoring, training, um, that sort of thing. And we've gone a couple weeks, and it's going to be an every other week thing. Uh, we're also going to be taking, we are open to live questions during the, the screencast we broadcasted over Google+. Um, the other pick is more generalized. I, I think I mentioned uh, Mastery by George Leonard last time I was on the show. Um, I've used that book to, um, to restart my exercise habit, and I've been exercising pretty much every day for over the past month. And the difference it's made in my energy level has been huge. I'm not sure we've ever talked about that as a pick. Um, I know we've, we've discussed sleep before, but um, exercise is right up there. So if you aren't, you probably have heard it before, but if you're not exercising, you're, you're, you're doing your brain a disservice. That's pretty much it. So you're just doing me as a pick and so I can get going and then you're going to get back to the show. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to end it without talking about um, subcontractor agreements. Ah. Nuts. I wish I could stick around for that. All right. Well, I guess I can listen to it later. Yep. Jared, Jared, thanks for being on the show. Really cool insights. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Great talking with you. See you later, guys. See ya. All right. So, um, like I said, subcontractor agreements, agreements with our subcontractors. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing I'd say there is all of a sudden, all those things that you're watching out for in your client contracts are the same things that you're probably going to want to be imposing upon your subcontractors. You're going to want to make sure that they're not circumventing and going directly with your clients. That's that's a big concern, especially if they're re- real true outside parties over whom you don't have a lot of ins or you know a lot of oversight and who are having direct client contact. Um, their circumvention would be very key. The other would be representations and warranties from them, especially if they're you know again outsiders. You know them. You know them from, you know, from online. You've seen some of their code or what you think is their code. But you know, in the in that recent story about that that guy who, I can't remember what 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 for, was he working with. Uh, I can't remember who he was working for. But he essentially had outsourced his whole job, right? And he's sitting there at work on Facebook, watching videos, doing whatever. And uh, his employer it took him a long time to figure out that he wasn't actually writing the code, wasn't doing what he was supposed to. So with the same thing with your subcontractors. Having representations and warranties from them that they, you know, that they're the original authors of their code so that you're not unintentionally putting open source libraries that you don't know or understand are open source libraries that could compromise um, the representations that you're making to the client are obviously would be very critical and important. Mm-hmm. Um, having your subcontractors um, carry insurance is also would also be a really important thing um, because. You know, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what they might have put in there. Any backdoors, any kind of illicit code, any kind of um, issues. Um, you know, it, it seems like today there's all sorts of, um, you know, we learn about people's double lives that on the surface they seem great, and, and we, we, we just don't really know. Uh, you know, I was, I was shocked about the uh, Olympic athlete, you know, the Pretorius or, um, today about the, the murder of his girlfriend and, and, you know, seeing an Olympic athlete who has a, a double life and ends up doing something like that. It, it, you know, it, it calls into question everybody we work with. And although we, we like to think and have the best intentions for the people we work with, um, we just don't know. And so protecting ourselves by having insurance in case we get burned by, 
by their mistakes and their follies um, or by their intentional um, their intentional misconduct is is certainly important. Um, the other thing, just from a practicality standpoint, um, requiring them to to make regular reports, um, regular reporting on not only you know where they at, are at from a project management standpoint for client um, management expectations, but also from a here's the hours I worked, here's the time I really was spent. Um, you can figure out quickly how efficient they are. Whereas if you're only looking at deliverables and lump sums of time, it's it, it becomes more difficult to really evaluate their performance and efficiency and, you know, among other things. That's just a general high level, but any specific questions, happy to answer. I don't know if I have any. Eric, do you have any? Specific no, I don't, I don't do much with subcontractors, so it's, I don't even have a subcontractor agreement. All right. Well, um, I don't know that I have any other questions other than, um, there are a couple of other legal topics that I'd like to cover, so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to come back for future shows. Oh, absolutely. Okay, we'll get you scheduled in for probably, um, I'd like to go a little deeper on intellectual property, and patents and copyrights and stuff like that. And uh, I think there was another topic that I was looking at. So, you know, if we could get you back for that, that would be awesome. Sounds good. All right, well, let's get into the picks then. Um, Eric, do you have picks this week? Um, actually, I don't because I took this entire week off from work. This is the only like work-related thing I'm doing. So I haven't been reading or doing anything at all. So I guess my pick would be take time off work. All right, And cool. to kind of base off Evan's, Evan's exercise, my other pick would be to breathe. So we can cover <laughs> that base. Nice. Okay, um, my picks this week, um, I bought a couple of screencasts off of Peep Code. So I'm going to pick peep code. Um, the ones that I bought, the, I, I got their, uh, chef, uh, video not too long ago. The, their part one, I just picked up part two today. Um, it's really, really good. And so I'm going to pick their chef video and I'm also going to pick their, um, Ember JS video, which I haven't watched, but I'm excited to see. So, um, Jared, what are your picks? Uh, my pick, um, since we're talking about contracts, is the Google Advanced Search function. Um, if you do your Google Advanced Search, you can limit, obviously, by uh, document type, and you can limit to PDF and .docs. And if you do a search for any of these provisions that we discussed, or general um, high-level contracts, just a, a contract title, and you limit it to PDF and .doc, you can get a whole array of wonderful contracts for free. You don't have to go to LegalZoom, you don't have to call an attorney, and if you get a few of them, you can quickly find a lot of those good, you know, gem provisions that you probably were looking for. All right, cool. All right, well, if that's all we've got, um, the only thing that I have left to uh, bring up is that I'm teaching a Ruby on Rails course. Um, you can go sign up at railsrampup.com. Um, it's only going to be available until March 6th, which is when the first um, lesson will be. So if you're going to sign up, I would sign up quickly. And if you use the code podcast, you can get $200 off. So, um, anyway, uh, thanks for coming, Jared. It was, it was really good to uh, talk through this and, and there are definitely some things that I'm going to have to go back through my contract and see if and where they fit and how I want to approach them. So, Oh, thanks for having me. And I hope it was somewhat helpful. So thanks again. Yeah. If people want to, uh, find you or hire you to do contracts for them, how do they do that? Yeah, you can, uh, get me at, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll shoot over the chat here, my contact. Um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, UT Startup Lawyer. You can email me at jrichards at btjd.com. 
and uh, I get a lot of phone calls. So 801-438-2040. All right. Good deal. Thanks again for coming. You bet.